We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. Recap. We are in the early stages of what I think will be at least a year-long project, uh, a community learning to make music together. A community learning together how to overcome our culture's loss of collective singing. Uh, You've heard me say before, we have become a music-consuming culture, so we consume a great deal of highly produced uh, music. But when we hear our own voices and it doesn't sound like that which we've become used to, we tend to shut down. And so it, uh, I thought it was just our church we were uncomfortable singing. Turns out that's kind of an American phenomenon. We, uh, we are not good at collectively singing together anymore. So here's what we're not doing yet. We're not fundamentally rethinking church music. We're beginning some stages. We're going to have a long conversation. That's actually a, a big project that we're, we'll be working on. But what we are doing is we're learning to do certain skill sets that will allow us to then rethink music at some point. We're learning how to integrate children and adults in a multi-generational way. How to sing parts you heard this morning. How to shake off the social inhibitions around singing. How to play instruments. How to bring uh, abandon to the process. So we're learning relearning the magic of many voices being able to make beauty that no single voice could make. So you heard me use the phrase last week Joe's been using, it's a year of pedagogical steps. And one of those is a baby step that you saw us take this morning towards singing harmony. Well, if you're going to take a baby step toward learning harmony, here's a good idea. You know what we could use is a short, easy to sing, eight measure song that has some easy harmonies in it. That would help us take one of these baby steps. And you know what? I happen to know, and I am nothing if not helpful, a song just like that. In fact, I know several songs like that. Now, here's the thing about several of the songs like that that I happen to know. Some of them would not ruffle anybody's feathers. And one of them guaranteed will. (laughs) And so what I think is, let's go with that one. In fact, let's make it our Easter song this year. <laughs> now, I like to think that I'm a nice guy, but you've got to wonder why that is so much fun. <laughs> it turns out that my grandson and I are bonding over our shared delight, ruffling other people's feathers. <laughs> That's not something that I can share with a lot of people, so it really is forming a deep bond between the two of us. <laughs> but in my defense, my grandson's as well, <laughs> Ruffling feathers is also one of the best ways to initiate change. So, last week we introduced the song we just sang, Jesus Remember Me, and sure enough, several of you let me know, ruffled, yes, happened. Now, I want to pause just a moment to say this. I am not just blowing smoke when I iterate and then reiterate again and again and again how much I appreciate those who bring a contrarian view. I really do. That is how authentic community happens. When someone says, Doug, this thing or that thing, not good, not good, here's what I hear. I hear, I care about this community. I am invested in this community. I feel protective of this community. So I want to thank you again for loving our community. That said, 
let's see if we can redeem this song. But as you will hear, I'm not really interested in the song as much as what the song represents. This song comes from an ancient Jesus story. Happened <coughs> as he was dying, being killed by a religious system that he was trying to reform. Happened by imperial con conquerors who were trying to keep their puppet regime happy. So here he is hanging between two criminals, and one of them is mocking him. Look here, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Mr. Anointed by God. Why don't you get that God of yours to help us out of here, would you? And the other one chastises the first and says, uh, we're getting what we deserve. He's not. He's an innocent man. So he, the second criminal, turns to Jesus and says the words of our song. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Greek word paradisio. Now, today's lesson was going to be satisfying. <laughs> it was going to be all tied up in a tidy bow. Until I realized just what I said a moment ago. I'm not all that interested in redeeming this song. I'm interested in redeeming the principles that make this song jangly. And that's going to take some time. So today, turns out, it's only going to be an introduction. I thought I would squeeze this lesson in before Palm Sunday and Easter. Now I've decided this is going to be Palm Sunday and Easter. That said, I also know a lot of folks travel <laughs> during Palm Sunday and Easter, so you might miss one of the weeks where you would get some closure, where it would get tied up in a tidy bow, so be sure to check online if that's you. So today all we're going to get to is what this story doesn't mean. What this song doesn't mean. In the next lessons, we'll talk a bit about what it does. I have had enough conversations with enough people about enough jangly religious things that I kind of have some informed guesses about what might be the jangly components of this story, this song. Three of them come to mind, and I hope you will weigh in for the ones that I miss. If there's something that jangles you that doesn't get covered in these three, please, I'd like to hear about that. Be as specific as you can, because it'll help me over the next couple of weeks. So the first jangly objection might be, yeah, Doug, the style of music, ugh, it just sounds not just choral, it sounds like church choral. And it brings to mind like old people standing in rows with robes on. And it brings all the people doing boring stuff, singing boring music. It's just churchy, and churchy is jangly. Churchy is jangly not just because churchy is boring, but many of us have kind of had it up to here with church. This smug, superior church looking down on other people. Religious institutions championing emptiness and calling it meaning. And getting all judgy and calling it love. And hyper-focused on doctrines that are actually making us worse people. So yeah, churchy is a bit of a problem. And this song is churchy. So why do it, Doug? Why would you do this song? Again, it was me. It wasn't Joe. It was me. <laughs> The second problem I imagined was the word Jesus, because the word figures rather prominently in both the story and the song, and the problem is less Jesus than how that word, Jesus, gets used by organized religion. Often, those who use the word Jesus most frequently also say the word, or if they don't say it, they think it, hell, as in, you're going. Uh, so, dead already, and Jesus 
traveling companions. I don't really get king of the Jews, king of beers. (laughs) And Jesus as a tattoo guy, also a puzzler. But someone saw enough of a connection between Jesus and beer, Jesus and tattoos to pay for billboard space. So there must be a connection. (laughs) I also don't know who the American Christians for National Security are. But... (laughs) I think that they think that Jesus thinks that protesting is bad for America. (laughs) But the best billboard I found came from the good folks in San Juan County who want everybody to know (laughs) when they go visit a porn shop (laughs) that Jesus is watching. (laughs) So lots of people have lots of agendas that have nothing to do with Jesus, but nevertheless lay claim to the word, to the name. So for many folks who just live in our culture, you pick that stuff up, and of course you begin to associate those agendas with the name, those agendas with Jesus, which can make a song like this rub us wrong. And I know it does, and I know it has. So why would you do that, Doug? The third problem I see that I I anticipated was that there are a couple of words in this, kingdom and paradise. When you come into your kingdom, and today you are with me in paradise. It's the words, but it's also the unspoken understanding behind the words. In Western culture, born as we are into the Greco-Roman version of Christianity over the last 1,600 years or so, those words carry cultural assumptions. Good criminal man sees the light, calls on Jesus to be saved from his misdeeds as he is dying, gets forgiven of his criminality, and gets to go to heaven when he dies. And when he gets there, he finds Jesus enthroned as king, complete with crown and with throne and with choirs of angels there ruling over the heavenly place. There's a theological word that real people do not need to know. The word is eschatology. It's the study of what happens when we die or the study of what happens when time comes to an end. And here in the West final judgment standing before God after we breathe our last breath is part of the eschatology framework that we all live in. If you watched that sitcom, uh, The The Good Place, you saw our cultural assumptions assumptions just showing up. Uh, Somebody shows up and now they're asking the question, what happened? Am I the good place or the bad place? Eschatology is in this song. Eschatology is in this story. Westerners can't but hear in the song, in the words, afterlife. I mean, Jesus and the criminal are on the cross. They are preparing to die. They're at death's door. And they're talking about the future. So it must be an afterlife future because their future is just about over. So if this is about the afterlife, then that's a problem because for many people, the Western worldview inherited afterlife narrative is no longer viable. And in this song where that shows up front and center, come on, Doug, why this song? Three strikes on this song. 
It's churchy. It's got untoward assumptions assigned to Jesus. It's got an eschatological framework that is no longer working for folks. And there were other songs. <laughs> we could have learned harmony another way. So next week, we'll talk uh, more uh, about the details surrounding what church actually means, what it does, what happens if we participate in the original design that church was made for. This week, I want to give you two preliminary thoughts. Why would we want to redeem something that carries as much hurt as church does, and why would we not want to jettison the whole thing? Well, a couple reasons. The first is that a tradition becomes a tradition because it lasts. That's what makes tradition, tradition. And things only last if there is embedded in them something beautiful, something true. This is not the first time that our religion has lost its way. We are living in a generation at a time that when history looks back upon us will be recognized as one of the unhealthiest times in our religion's history. But this is not the first time we've been here. Not the first time we've been corrupted. Every human institution gets corrupted. Every human tradition gets uh, corrupted. But to be a tradition, there must be deep beauty in there somewhere. There must be deep meaning and truth and goodness. Now, I know folks in our community get a little uh, weird around referring to Common Thread as a church. Many would prefer we used the term spiritual community. Uh, anything that would not evoke the images of mean-spirited or narrow-minded or hypocritical that are often associated with that word church. But it turns out that that word represents something beautiful. When we gather people around a story, when we gather people around practices and around community, and then when we do that thing for 2,000 years straight, we accumulate experience, rich and beautiful experience. And that experience gets embedded in what has now become almost a derogatory term, church or churchy. So I know it's unfashionable to be Christian. That's what happens in the we've lost our way times. But redemption is a theme for a reason. Which brings up the second reason why I think we ought to redeem instead of jettison, and this one is kind of personal. I got pretty corrupted by my early life. I was damaged, and I turned around, and I did damage. I was hurt, and I have hurt. And as I was hurting myself, and as I was hurting others, I was telling myself that I was good. You might have even thought, had you known me at the time, oh yeah, he's a good guy. I told myself on those rare occasions when someone cared enough to actually tell me about the harm that I had done. Most didn't. Most just evaporated from my life. Whenever someone would mount the courage to talk to me about that, I would tell myself that my intentions were good and I was innocent, that my heart was pure and I was innocent, that I was on the side of God, I was on the side of the devout, and I was committed to virtue. 
And nevertheless, I left a trail of harm in my wake. In a couple of the worst instances, I didn't even feel regret about the harm that I had done for two decades after I had done it. It took me that long to undo the delusion and to see the harm that I had caused. I know many of you, and I know for some of you, that's your story too. I hate that that happened to me. I hate that that happened to you, but it's not unlike what has happened and what is happening to the Christian religion. We have lost our way, and we tell ourselves we haven't. And we tell ourselves that things are going well, that we have things right, and we can't see how badly we have lost our way. Well, if that's your story, and I pray that for you and our religion, that what happened for me happens for us. A lot of people saw in me, in my life, more than my hurtful parts. A lot of people saw in me more than my blind spots. A lot of people saw in me more than the hurt that I caused, all the while being persuaded that I was innocent. I grew up in the, uh, with the kind of church people who reinforced for each other that we are, every one of us, even this bonehead, carriers of the inner light. They did not abandon me, though it would have been justified. They took me for meals, and they invited me for conversations, and they spent hours and hours and hours gently painting for me a greater truth that I was resistant to hearing. They allowed me to be on teams that I had no business being on. They befriended me, and then they stayed my friend. And I bet they didn't call it this, but what they were doing was redeeming this lost boy, this very hurtful lost boy. So maybe because of that, I feel this mission of redemption deeply. I feel the instinct to repair and not jettison deeply. I feel the mission to heal and not abandon. And I feel that with people. Many of you, I have felt that with you. Uh, I don't think I could say it more often than I say it, that we are every one of us carriers of the inner light. Well, I say that because, yes, you've got shit going on. And you've given me the privilege of talking to me about it. I've told you about mine as well. But that doesn't define us. That's not the defining reality behind what's going on. There is in each of us the inner divine. The same thing is true of our religion. I am not unaware (coughs) of how much damage and how much silliness and how much painted into a corner harmfulness our religion causes. I would hazard to say I know more about that than most do. But I've also seen that there is more in there than what we can currently see and what we often see right now. There is truth and there is beauty and there is goodness and there is dignity and there is nobility. There is generations of wisdom. And yes, it is also a tradition that causes pain. Church and churchy can be bad words. They can. But they can also be beautiful words. But they can't be beautiful words if someone, some community, some people don't do the work of redeeming what has grown toxic or harmful or hurtful. I tend to gravitate to religious symbols that are old. 
I liked those old Celtic crosses. I liked stained glass. I liked songs that show up in Latin because those speak to a time in the past and they tell us about the richness of our heritage that what we see today is not the only version of following Jesus that there is. Next week I want to talk to you about a human uh, developmental process that only happens when people gather and do what church is designed to do. That'll be next week. But I hope we can redeem the word church and the feeling around churchy. I also want to redeem the word Jesus, the name Jesus, the character, the seminal figure in our religion, Jesus. Everybody who has an agenda likes to associate their agenda with someone prominent. And in the West, for about 16 or 1700 years, it was hard to find anyone more prominent than Jesus. So it is understandable that Jesus has been contorted to fit all kinds of agendas. But it's the same question that we approach with church or churchy. Shall we abandon this seminal figure or try to redeem? One of the most significant corruptions of Jesus happened when Christianity became the religion of Roman conquest. Jesus underwent at that time a marked transformation. This man who had focused on awakening people to the interior divine, drawing from that interior divine to transform how human beings live, to transform what constitutes community, uh, this man was afforded instead what you see in these church windows, the status of a Roman hero, fighting Roman battles to achieve Roman objectives. We afforded this man all of the muscular trappings that befit imperial conquerors, a sword, you can see that in the glass, a throne and a crown that match the imperial throne and crown. It wasn't Jesus any more than king of beers is Jesus. <laughs> but it became the story. And many either bought into the story or dismissed the whole thing because they saw how corrupt it was. For me, strikes two and three on our list have become connected to each other. Redeeming Jesus became for me uh, part and parcel with redeeming the word kingdom. Once Rome took over our religion, the term that Jesus used a lot, the kingdom of God, began to mean something very different than when Jesus was using it. The kingdom of God started to mean about 200 to 400 years after Jesus, the afterlife. It started to mean heaven, a place to go if you are good, a place to go if you convert and follow Rome's religion. If you do that, then this is a glorious place that you get to go after you die, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the thing is, that is not at all what Jesus taught. When Jesus used that term, the kingdom of God, he was talking about a way of being human. And that way of being human happened right here on this earth in this time among these people. He was talking about kind of an elevated form of human consciousness, wakefulness to the interior light way 
of being human. His agenda wasn't about tattoos being cool or porn being dirty. His agenda was about discovering how change happens in human souls as they are rehabilitated and how rehabilitated souls can rehabilitate a society. Some have referred to that phrase, trying to update it into an understanding that we would have in our culture, the commonwealth of God as opposed to the kingdom of God because we don't any longer live in kingdoms and it's not really a hierarchical thing as the word kingdom suggests. Jesus' agenda was about change, changing how Jews related with Jews that they disagreed with, changing how Jews related to Romans who were oppressing them, a different way to be a community and a different way to resist injustice, a different way to precipitate change. For goodness sakes, we've certainly tried slit their throats because God is on our side. That's what the zealots were doing at Jesus' time. And he said, yeah, that's not going to work. And we certainly tried be super holy and then shame everybody else into being super holy too because then God will be on our side. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's not going to work either, he taught us. We've tried, things are never going to change, so just settle for getting some for you and some for yours. That's what the stewards and the tax collectors were doing. All three patterns that we see in our own culture today. And Jesus said to all three of them, it's not going to work. We've done it before. It won't work. The way, and that was what our religion was referred to at the beginning, the way starts with interior transformation. And it starts with a whole bunch of things that say this is how interior transformation happens. We awaken to this deep inner uh, reality that we all carry, what we call the divine. And then inner transformation makes outer transformation possible in a sustainable way. One without the other, we've tried. Limited results at best, usually burnout, most often toxic unintended consequences. Inner change starts. Social change emerges. And we have accumulated 2,000 years of experience. Boy, getting it wrong so many times. Think crusades. But getting it right so many times. Demonstrating again and again and again. This is how that happens. This is what it looks like when it happens. This is how you do that. So we could abandon the whole thing and start all over from scratch. We could do that. And I understand the motivation. I do. When you have been hurt, all you want to do is get away from. I understand that. But if we redeem what is precious within our own tradition, we have access to the accumulated experience of those gone before us who also lost their way but found it again. There's a rich heritage of experience embedded in this person, Jesus. There is a rich uh, heritage of experience embedded in this story that the song comes from. There is a rich bedrock of experience embedded in this religious tradition of ours. And there's also three strikes. That's also in there. Now that last word, <coughs> paradise, Paradise. Just a quick word on that. Here's what that word does not mean. This is what that word never meant. It does not mean heaven. Here's what that word did not mean then and does not mean now. Does not mean the afterlife. 
It did not mean heaven or afterlife to Jesus. It did not mean it to the criminal, not to the people who wrote down the story after the long oral tradition, not to the people who read it after it was written. If you're old, <laughs> you can remember Joni Mitchell. And if you can remember Joni Mitchell, you'll remember Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young singing her song at Woodstock, We Are Stardust and We Are Golden and We've Got to Get Back to the Garden. Well, it turns out that's what the word meant. To Jesus and to the criminal and to those who wrote it down, paradise meant getting back to that place of connection to the divine, connection to creation, and connection to one another. It meant the garden. Jesus spent his life describing that reality. He didn't use the word garden. There's only a couple of times that that shows up in the New Testament. He used the word kingdom, basileo, the kingdom of God. But he was describing the same thing. There is another way to be human, to draw from the interior divine that we all carry. Let me model it for you. Let me encourage you into it. And then let us carry that into the world that we transform every day. So it wasn't surprising that he used the word paradise. It was completely consistent with his central message. Redeeming what's broken, doing it right here. Healing what is wounded, doing it right here. Inner transformation, social change, doing it right here. Kingdom and paradise, all of a piece. So it's not surprising that the word paradise showed up. It's not surprising that it showed up when they weren't even talking about the afterlife. What is surprising is this. These two men were on death's door. And these two men were on death's door, not on this side of the Romanization of the Christian religion. Consequently, they did not have the afterlife narrative that we all grew up in. They instead had a story around the, the Jewish concept of Sheol. And Sheol was just a word for the grave. It was a place people go when they die. Occasionally, in some kind of mystical experience, one might have a conversation with someone in Sheol. Think Lazarus in the put some water on my tongue story. Maybe there were a few not very well-defined wisps and wonderings that maybe the, the did who stood for freedom with us in our challenging fight against oppression, maybe they will get to come out of the grave to have the after party, like that last scene in Star Wars where Yoda and Obi-Wan show up in a shimmering kind of way. There was a little bit of that among some people, but there was no idea that there was an afterlife that we were going to go to when we died. The concept of Sheol was not that. It was the complete absence of that. So that's what makes this story surprising and that's what makes this story beautiful. When your story is not that, when you do not hold on with confidence to an eschatological expectation of the afterlife, how did they both speak in terms of such hope because clearly they're about to die there is no hope here there's not that hope there is no hope and yet they hope that's what's surprising about this story that's what's beautiful about this story 
That's what's revolutionary and transformative about church and about churchy and about organized Christianity. That mission to get back to the garden, the mission of the kingdom of God, this new way of being human, this deeper way of being community, they both held on to hope when it was clear there was no hope. That's what's magical and that's what's beautiful about this story and that's what's magical and that's what's beautiful embedded deep in our tradition. Finding hope when everything we know tells us there is no hope. Not a lot of folks look around our world today and can find a lot of hope. This is kind of a hopeless time in American, if not global, history. Uh, we've lost the simplicity of the Greco-Roman assurance of an afterlife that will reward us if we've done the right thing, and we live honestly in kind of an ugly shitstorm. And there's not a lot of hope. But here's what this story tells us. Not so hasty. There is hope when nothing says there is hope. Next week, what part of being churchy gets us to the place where we discover that? Next week, we're going to look at what the spiritual journey looks like, the stages that we go through as we walk this spiritual journey. Many of those stages are thwarted by our current way of doing religion, so consequently, we never do get to that place where we can hope when there is clearly no hope. We miss the best part because the best part is what happens on the other side of the struggle of religious transformation that happens in the context of church. So in order to do that, we're going to have to check in with some monks. Turns out they've been doing this for a good long time. We're going to have to check in with some mystics because mysticism is actually making a mainstream movement again into this moment in history because it's a perfect fit for our emerging worldview. And scandal of all scandals, we're going to have to check in with some scientists who are running psilocybin tests on terminal cancer patients. <laughs> because it turns out that the story is beautiful, which I think makes the song beautiful, and I think it's embedded in a tradition that is beautiful because in it is embedded the accumulated experience of those who have gone before us who can tell us with experience there is hope when clearly there is no hope. And I think that's a beautiful story. And if you hang in long enough, I think it'll make for a beautiful song. <laughs> so, in Dwelling Divine, may we find beauty in the ashes. Amen. Well, if you would, please prepare your offerings. We all give online now. Go to our website <coughs> or uh, here. You can just click on the box. And uh, we all do that now. Remember what I say all the time. We give our resources to the community. We invest our time and our energy and our love and our dollars. The community takes those resources, amplifies them, and gives them back to us in the form of an environment in which we thrive and flourish. So we all give online now. Uh, we are able to do what we're doing now because you all have been a generous community. Thank you. In a moment, we're going to dismiss uh, those of you online, and we're going to go over these questions. Uh, if you want to go over to Zoom right now, you could also go over these questions with some people who I promise will not be mean to you. 
It's always a little scary to go somewhere you've never been before because you don't know if people are going to be nice. But on this Zoom, I pretty much guarantee you the folks are going to be nice to you. So if you head over there, uh, you will, over time, start to get to know those folks. And over time, they can actually become dear to you as we are becoming dear to one another here in the room. So let's dismiss the folks uh, as we go. If you would, put your hand on your heart. And let's remember that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, what we call the fruit of the divine spirit is in us. And if you would, extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for opportunities to share what's already in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair and heal our worlds. Amen. God bless you all. You are dismissed. We are not dismissed. Heather, come on up and lead us through. What are you thinking? If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.